Ladies and gentlemen, hello, welcome. My name is Dave Hollis. I'm the co-host of this Rise Together program and am sitting in the illustrious studios of the Start Together podcast where uh, Rachel Hollis is not here today and I'm going to take some questions from the phone bank. From the phone bank? From the hotline. It's not called a phone bank any longer. We've changed it to the hotline. So we have a hotline, 737-400-HOCO. 737-400-HOCO, and human beings are actually calling and leaving voice messages on said uh, hotline. And now it's time for me, your old pal Dave, to give you a little bit of a response. Hi, I'm Rachel Hollis. And I'm Dave Hollis. And we're married. For like 15 years. And we have four kids. That's like a thousand kids. We've been foster parents to four kids as well. And we're running a business together. That's a lot of things. It is a lot of things. But we know that it's possible to have an exceptional relationship regardless of the stresses you have in your life. So if you want some tips and tricks on how we get through all the things, this is Rise Together. So uh, in this episode, we have three callers, two of whom are asking very similar questions. They're about to get married and are wondering what the heck to expect as you decide to now spend the rest of your life with a human being, move in and live together with somebody. Uh, What piece of advice, you know, what piece of advice do I wish that I had, do we wish that we had prior to having been married? Uh, And the third is a caller who has been with a significant other for some length of time, five years, and is still not sure he's the one. So in each instance, these callers are people who are not yet married, who are looking for a little bit of uh, thinking thoughts, insight, my perspective, as it turns out, on what to do before you get married. Ladies and gentlemen, let's dive in, shall we? Hi, Rachel and Dave. My name's Alice. I'm 22 years old, and I live in Canada. I'm getting married in, holy crap, 23 days. Uh, My future husband and I are super big fans of your Rise Together podcast, but we're both wondering, what's the biggest piece of advice you wish somebody had told you at the beginning of your marriage? You hear lots of stuff that, you know, don't go to bed angry. And yes, that's absolutely true. But what's something you wish somebody had said to you like, as soon as you got married. Hi, Dave and Rach. This is Francesca. I am getting married in July, and my question is, what is your best advice for preparing for marriage and living together? Thank you so much. I hope you can answer my question, and I love listening to all of your wisdom. Have a great day. Uh, I thought I would start... with a reading out of uh, a book I have coming out. It's called Get Out of Your Own Way. Hello. Uh, I wrote this book that is filled with lies. Doesn't that sound appealing? Uh, I decided to write a book that was 20 lies that I once believed that uh, in uncovering the truth of those lies helped me get out of my own way. So the book is called Get Out of Your Own Way. And the 13th chapter of this book is entitled uh, I Know What She Needs, The Lie, I know what she needs. So I'm going to read a little bit, and then I'm going to talk about uh, the first piece of advice that I would give someone going into their marriage. The lie. I know what she needs. 
When Rachel was on the back end of a 52-hour labor with our first son and the doctor came in and told her it was finally time to push, I did what I knew she needed most. I pulled up Trick Daddy's Let's Go and turned it up. Way up. I thought the contagious beat and melodic perfection that comes by adding Twista and Lil John were precisely what that moment called for. Incorrect. That was not my greatest choice. It turned out Rachel, in fact, did not need that song to help her bring our cherub into the world. She definitely didn't need it on volume level eight. I'm going to lead with the conclusion of this chapter first. If you're in a relationship and you have a preconception that you know what your partner is going to need from you in the future, you're wrong. If you thought you knew what your partner needed before you were in a relationship, before you got under the hood and really understood their wiring and how yours and theirs shakes hands, again, you've set yourself up for disappointment. If you're anything like me, your idea of how you should treat a partner was influenced by some combination of your parents' views, societal norms in your formative years, the example of your closest friends, and depictions of how relationships worked on television and in movies. All of these things, as well-intended as they may have been, are missing two critical ingredients. One, knowing how your partner is specifically wired. One, knowing how your partner is specifically wired. From the unique nuances of their personality and their communication style to the way they give and receive love. And two, the flexibility to change as life changes. Your vision of what your partner needs cannot be static. And two, the flexibility to change as life changes. Your vision of what your partner needs cannot be a static snapshot but a motion picture that moves as the stories and stages of your life develops. So in this chapter, I dive into what I think is maybe the most important way to start answering the question posed by our callers that are about to get married. And that is, I, young baby Dave version uh, of me, as I was getting married to Rachel, thought I'd, uh, one, had a handle on what she would need in this relationship of ours and that those needs were fixed. How ridiculous. Uh, the, the, you know, the idea that I even had a handle on what she needed, it turned out was such a mistake for me to have presupposed that that in fact was the case because it didn't take long being in the relationship for me to realize that I'd miscalculated what in fact she really needed in the relationship in the first place. But more than that, I mean, God, we've been married now almost 16 years. The people we were back then are so unbelievably different. I mean, wildly, unrecognizably different, physically, emotionally, spiritually, on every single level, we are so different. And in those differences, the things that we needed as we were entering our relationship are as different now as we are different now. And so the first thing I would say is whatever you are going into this first year of wedded bliss with as a thought for what you can bring to best support your partner 
to best be in like service of helping bring their best out to um, be a good partner and a good listener and a good you know person who gives and, and is able to help receive their all, all the things. The thing that you are for them today or that you are in support of them for, it's, it's going to change. And the more that you can come in acknowledging that you um, know so little <laughs> about each other and who you will inevitably become and how you can best be in relationship with this person, the more likely you will be able to as seasons in life or growth in individuals as like individual contributors to this relationship, as one of you grows and changes, everything inside of the relationship changes. And in a weird way, again, I think this kind of comes back to me having grown up as a person with more of a fixed mindset. I, I always had a bit of an adverse reaction to the idea that things could change it triggered some like strange insecurity on my side, or it made me worry that maybe I wasn't doing the things that were working before because now the relationship was morphing into something new. And now, you know, 16 years into being married, I can see how, one, ridiculous it is to think that you can keep parts of the relationship constant or that it's even in your best interest to try to because you are and and your partner is uh, ever they're, they're, you're each an ever-changing individual that as you change, changes the dynamic of the relationship. Um, so the first, the, my first big piece of advice is acknowledge that what you know of each other today is 100% going to change. That change is not a bad thing. It is a sign of your growth, and growth is the thing that you'll need to continue on a pursuit for something exceptional. Um, that's one. Two, I had zero concept in this now recognition of how much we would change, how much more I could love this person than I did the day we were standing across from each other getting married. And that is an important thing to hold because as much as this window right now, just before you're going to get married, you cannot imagine having consecutive days where you don't like this human. You're if you're not currently living together, you're going to now be in close proximity every single day, sharing space. You are going to 100% get to a place where you don't like each other as much as you love each other. And being able to hold this reality that your love is a thing that will unbelievably grow beyond what you know of it today is a thing that you may have to hold on to on the days when it feels hard to be married. The first year of being married is this very strange, at least it was for us, this very strange, uh, strange, almost like schizophrenic-ish year because there were these like unbelievable, joyful, blissful, look at us, we're grown-ups, we find ourselves sharing this tiny apartment and oh my goodness, we can cook our own dinners and you forgot to put your socks away and do you think that a fairy comes in and refills the toilet paper roll and why is there toothpaste on my side of the back? Like it's cohabit co cohabiting, cohabiting, living together. Living together is a, it, it's, it's a, it's an acquired thing. Uh, it's an acquired taste skill. It takes time and patience and understanding the ways that each of you individually uh, work. And man, the like high highs of that, like 
blissful, oh my goodness, it's going to be the rest of our life, inevitably end up running into the, holy cow, man, you need to flush the toilet after you go to the bathroom. I mean, I'm referring basically to all of the things that I did when I acquired a roommate for the first time in my life and then forgot that decency was a part of a marriage. So, uh, you know, maybe you're marrying a gentleman. And and I commend you for having chosen someone who will put the toilet seat down and flush it. Uh, but if you end up, uh, you know, becoming a little more comfortable, you're out of this courting dating phase. I hope, by the way, that no one ever actually gets out of the courting dating phase. But, you know, in the chance that you get into like the everyday, you know, just living in the same house together kind of mode, um, it's a thing that's just going to take a little bit of time to get used to. So, um clinging to the fact that you and your love will continue to grow and totally, it, it, like, when I say I could not conceive of the way that I think about who Rachel is and what our love is because of what it has had to endure, um, that doesn't mean that, like, oh, we just, like, rode on a unicorn from, you know, being young to now having a love that's great. I mean, we had to go through some really hard crap and some really like heavy crying moments, a decent amount of therapy, like confronting things that stunk about a relationship that wasn't thriving and having survived some of those times, we, we, we've come out the other side, dang it, stronger and more in love for having decided to push past and push through. Gosh, this isn't a rousing endorsement for getting married. I hope the people who called in are still interested in saying I do. Um, you should. I mean, shoot, you definitely should. Uh, I, I do appreciate the first caller saying like uh, this presupposition that the idea of not going to bed angry is, of course, the thing that you should uh, abide by. Uh, I'll tell you what, I absolutely 100% think you should go to bed angry. <laughs> because uh, my experience in the uh, I wish I hadn't listened to like the what to expect when you're getting married book or whatever kind of like colloquialism uh, advice that you find about what to do when you're getting married. Uh, it's to me been uh, impractical in our marriage to try and work through heavy, hard stuff at the end of a long day when we're tired. And in the absence of having the capacity to process and have a constructive dialogue, it has proven for us to be better to get a good night of sleep while we're frustrated than to try and have a two-hour conversation in the 21 minutes that we have before we are just completely drained and then are unable to actually have a constructive dialogue. So um, it may be different for you. You may decide that you want to, every single time, go to bed uh, having fully resolved every single issue that comes up. And if you're dealing with small enough issues at the beginning of your marriage, uh, that is awesome. But if you ever end up stumbling into something that requires a little bit of a longer conversation and you've had a long day, I would recommend getting some sleep, really processing what it is that you want to say, how to say it and the way that it might be best received by the person you're trying to deliver it to so that it can be heard in a way that doesn't immediately trigger defensiveness, um, that you can wrap the way that you wanna try and articulate your argument 
in in words that express first your interest in a positive resolution and some um, hope for a loving outcome instead of potentially winning an argument before you go to bed. Um, what else do I wish I had known before uh, we were married? Uh, you know, I don't want to get too in the weeds on intimacy, but I will tell you this. Uh, with age and experience, with our having committed to uh, intimacy in our bedroom as a thing that is important for our relationship, and with the maturity that's come in becoming self-confident in ourselves, our body, our uh, like willingness to have embarrassing conversations for the sake of having great sex, we have way better time together at night with the door locked before we fall asleep than we ever did at the beginning of our relationship. Um, and I and I guess I would encourage you if you are about to be married and intimacy is a thing that you are not yet fully, fully comfortable having totally honest conversations with, that you have a conversation outside of the bedroom uh, as you're doing your premarital work to talk about what you'd hope that you might be able to like grow into in that capacity. Because dang it, it's an important ingredient in, uh, you know, just connecting obviously, but um, being comfortable to confront your intention with how you'd hope to have the kind of romantic, intimate relationship that your, you know, wedding, that your partner, that your husband or wife deserves um, may require having a, a little bit of a harder, embarrassing conversation. But if anything, if I could go back in a time machine, like any of the insecurities that existed in my head about talking about certain things, wanting certain things, needing certain things, her having any like reservations and representing what she needed or any kind of like on either side, like body image or like any of it. It's just such a stupid waste of time. If you, um, if you're a woman who's in a relationship with a man and you have any kind of body image things as a limiting belief around your uh, attractiveness, uh, that's not real. Your, uh, your husband, your, 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 your man is interested in your, your butt and your boobs. Uh, and that is the end of the conversation, truly. <laughs> so um, if, if, if that is a thing, uh, as you go into this marriage, uh, by all means, uh, push past the insecurity and uh, have a conversation about what it would take to have an unbelievable relationship in, um, in that capacity, in that vein, too. Um, the one thing, too, another thing that, uh, that comes to mind, I wish that we had been a little more intentional about a conversation around role expectations prior to getting married. Like, what role, Dave... Do you think a wife plays in this home coming into this marriage? What role, Dave, do you think, right? What role, Rachel, do you think a husband plays in, in this relationship? Because as I, as I wrote in the book, like some of what each of us brought into the relationship was informed by what other people had defined as 
good qualities of a relationship or as the way husbands are meant to show up for their wives or the way wives are meant to show up for their husbands. And that does not take into consideration any of the actual individual needs of the people who are in the real relationship. And so if there was any disservice done at the beginning of our relationship, it was depending on what my, and my parents are rad, but their marriage and what they held as values in their relationship, I can honor the fact that they were awesome for them and created in me an awesome human as their son, but don't all perfectly apply to our marriage because they're not in our marriage. We're in our marriage. And I think if I could go back in time, I'd, I'd have said like, hey, why don't you ask some questions about the capital T truths that you hold from society, from your parents, from other models of uh, relationships that you've seen in through the lens of being successful and ask, are these qualities that I want to bring into this house? Are these qualities that serve my wife? Rather than even trying to come to that conclusion, might I ask Rachel if these are the ways that she believes she could best have her needs met and have her like need for being seen and, and loved and, and, and anything else um, actually land on her in that way? Uh, you know, we in this podcast have an episode where we had the author of Love Languages, Dr. Gary Chapman, come on and have a conversation about love languages. It's a fantastic podcast, and it is a tool that we didn't have at the beginning of our marriage that, dang it, would have made it so much easier for me to understand better how to afford this person, my best friend, my now wife. I was trying to give her love in the way that I needed to receive love which meant that she was not receiving the things I was doing as love. You know, I, like, I'm a person who's an acts of service kind of person, and she's a words of affirmation kind of person. And so here I am doing all these things, acts of service, to show her how much love I have for her. And they're falling on deaf ears, not because of her not wanting to notice my like attempts at affection, but truly because she's wired to receive love through words. And it took us having a longer conversation about things like a tool, like five love languages, to actually understand that and then to meet her where she needed to be met. So, um, you know, do do a little bit of that work. You know, we've obviously, we've talked about Enneagram and uh, I've at work used DISC tests, like personality diagnostics, things like love languages. They are great tools so many of them exist for absolutely free and doing a little bit of that work during the premarital window. Heck, if you're listening to this and you're already married, a hundred percent, if you haven't done these tests to understand, like Dr. Chapman has a book that's not just about love languages, but also languages of apology. Like if I had two books to give someone who was getting married, love languages and languages of apology from Dr. Chapman would be the two books. Because if you understand how to love and how to say I'm sorry, forget it. You guys might be up for winning a prize, you know? And it's like that exists, that knowledge exists 100%. It's at your fingertips. And if you were to just go do that work, it would, it would shortcut so many things that are right now blocks in your relationship. Hey, Rachel. Uh, my name's Natalie. And I just have a question for you. Um, I've been with my boyfriend five years, and I'm not sure if he's the one. So I guess my question would be is how do you know if he's the one? And I keep going back and forth in my mind, um, 
Yeah, she is. No, she doesn't. And it's just exhausting. <laughs> so if you have any tips, I'd love to hear them. Thanks. On the on the third caller, what's interesting is when you've been in a relationship for a length of time, like five years, you have a pretty good handle on who this person is, right? Like you, you know more or less who they are and who they aren't, what they stand for and what they don't, how they make you feel. And, um, and this question of like, how do I know if he's the one is an interesting one if for no other reason than 16 years almost of being married has completely changed the way I think about the one. From my perspective, you have to wake up every single day and choose the person that you have married to be the one. At the beginning, it's super easy, or at least easier. Dang it, I hope it's easier. Like if you've decided to marry someone, I hope that you wake up in the morning, you're like, yeah, you're the one. But like five years in, you're probably still there. Then you have a kid. Then you're like, man, I think I still like you, but you created this anyway. Like, but at 15 years in, right? It is an active choice every morning to pursue this person as though they're the one. You cannot hope for pixie dust. You cannot hope for magic or unicorns to conjure some feeling for the rest of time because life, because unexpected phone calls in the middle of the night, because things are going to happen that are going to challenge your relationship that are going to require you to either every single day wake up and choose this is the person that I am with and this is the person that I will pursue and this is the person I want an exceptional relationship with or you are going to leave it to a feeling that will fade or be affected by life showing up and you will be stuck. So my question I think to you is, if I were to tell you with what I believe is some degree of certainty that after some length of time, a feeling, even if you had one today, wouldn't be as much a determining factor in the success of your relationship as you're deciding every single day to pursue this person, does it change your mind? If you feel like you need a feeling to act as the catalyst to pursue this partner, then I think you have your answer. But if you, on your own, would wake up 15 years from now after life through whatever it will inevitably throw your way, and you still are like, yep, you're my guy in a bunker. You're the one that I am going to get up with and fight to have an exceptional relationship with, then they are the one because you've decided it. All right. I'm going to finish this episode by finishing a little bit out of the book from this chapter, The Lie. I know what she needs. I don't know what she needs. Uh, I'm going to finish this, uh, this episode with a, just a little bit more on the chapter, I Know What She Needs. At the end of every chapter of my book, all 20 of the lies, when I get to the end of the chapter, I talk about the things that helped me. And so here are in uncovering the lie, I Know What She Needs, the things that helped me. Number one, I took the taboo out of tools. Any of the negativity I associated with reaching for and using relationships tools was quickly erased by their power to help drive my relationship forward and help it evolve into something bigger, faster. A younger version of myself would see looking to things like Enneagram and love languages to podcasts and books as something only for people who were broken, inexperienced, uncool, or somehow less of a man. But 
Having been the beneficiary of the fruit that's come from these resources, I now see my form I now see my former self as foolish and prideful at the expense of being full. Push your preconceived notions of what it means to take help and embrace the answer keys that exist, often for free, as the route to the more exceptional version of your relationship. Two, I committed to putting in the work of relationship development. Having an exceptional relationship will not happen without work. Our decision to go to therapy and sign up for personal development conferences and the way that we push each other to read a new book or listen to a new podcast are reflections of our intention. If you want to be a better bowler, you have to hit the lanes on the regular. You want to be a better hunter? You have to learn how to stock and hunt. Frankly, I have no idea what you have to do to be a better hunter because I only just moved to Texas and that's not my jam yet. The bottom line, when we have things in our lives that we want to get better at, we know it will take work and time to get closer to our goals. It's not often that we think about our relationships that way. And it's time we deconstructed any barriers that would keep us from the kind of relationship we want and deserve. And number three, I filtered other people's relational feedback based on their track records. Have you ever been in a situation where the person giving you relationship advice couldn't themselves hold one down? In the same way I wouldn't come to someone who was totally out of shape for advice on working out, the idea of giving weight to the opinions of someone who isn't excelling in their relationship is ridiculous. Plenty of people have tried to tell us the best way Rachel and I should be doing our marriage. If those voices come from people who are killing it in their own relationship, their thoughts are welcome. But if the feedback you're getting is coming from someone who can't keep a steady relationship, you best filter out their feedback as it doesn't come from a credible source. Y'all, I'm excited to uh, have this book come out. It comes out on March 10th of this year. I, uh, side note, just released an e-course as a thank you to any of you who pre-ordered this darn book. Uh, it's an e-course called How to Find Your Why. And it is available with a little workbook and it's a little more, it's around an hour long. And it just takes you through why you haven't found your why, the components of a why, what'll get in your way once you kind of track on what it is that is your passion, your, your calling in life, and then how to activate it. And uh, if you are interested in uh, one, pre-ordering the book, dang it, I would really, really appreciate it. Pre-orders are a huge, huge, important thing in the book world. All of the pre-orders hit the charts on the same day, the day that the book is released, which triggers going on lists. So uh, I'm asking for a favor. Hey, would you consider pre-ordering the book? But as a thank you, as a, hey, you do me a solid, I'll do you a solid. Uh, I made this great e-course. It is, uh, like I say, about an hour long. And it's available at getoutofyourownwaythebook.com. If you go to the site right now, follow the prompts, uh, you can not only have the e-course with the little workbook, but also hear the first 30 minutes of the book in an audio file that we'll send to your email in real time. I appreciate y'all so much. I uh, thank you to our callers for sending us uh, something fun to talk about on this episode of the Rise Together podcast. I look forward to being back next week with Rachel Hollis, the co-host, S, the co-host, the co-host S, whatever. She's usually here sitting next to me in the white chair. Uh, she'll be back next week. Between now and then, 
continue to do the work on having an exceptional relationship. And we'll see you next week on the Rise Together podcast.